It is kind of fun to be back in Chilliwack. Matt mentioned uh, 29 years ago, Carolyn and I moved to Chilliwack, and uh, as we were driving in today, Carolyn goes, man, a lot of painful memories, uh, and that's true. Uh, we came to Chilliwack as a pretty messed up, broken, young married couple. Uh, we uh, came out here because I had a job offer. We were living in Saskatchewan, and some friends said, hey, uh, if you come to Chilliwack, we got work for you. And we found our way to Chilliwack Central because we had some family attending here, and there's not hardly any of you guys except Gordon Wendy and Gordon Esther, about the only guys that I've recognized so far that we remember back in those days. Most of you weren't born yet back then. Uh, so, but this place was a healing place for us for two years as we uh, worked together uh, with the, the church family surrounded us and loved on us. We were in some counseling, and a couple years later, we headed into pastoral ministry, and I uh, did 23 years in the local church, and then since then, nine years ago, working with church planning across the country, and really excited about what God is doing uh, across our nation, very, very excited about what God's doing in the local church, renewal and revival. We're going to talk about that a bit today, the renewal and the revival of this congregation. Uh, you need to know that life cycles of the church, uh, this church actually should be closed according to statistics, because most uh, churches in North America have a life cycle about 50 to 60 years, and then they close their doors. And uh, Chilliwack Central, and now Central Community Church, has seen this renewal that God is bringing. And uh, to walk through the doors and to see those, like, 2,300 children just leave to go to uh, <laughs> kids' church, I'm like, man, you guys got the multiplication thing down, so that's awesome. So uh, that timer means nothing, so I, this isn't in my notes. But anyway, uh, yes, Mennonite Brethren Church funding. C2C, for the last eight years, has been part of the Mennonite Brethren denomination, but also given the freedom to work cross-denominationally. And so in the last seven, eight years, the Lord has really expanded and blessed that. There's about 30 denominations that partners. Many of them are just one couple that we're partnering with. The majority of the 100 couples we're currently working with are still Mennonite Brethren, about half of them. And we put together a little booklet right here, and in this book is just Mennonite Brethren Church Planning in Canada. So if you're interested in what's going on across the nation, literally from Atlantic Canada out to uh, Vancouver, uh, it's in this book. If you pray, if you're interested in church planning, if you'd like to be stirred up about church planning, would love to have you pick one of these up. I'll just leave them here. And I uh, got 15, 20 copies, encourage you to take those and pray over them and with them and through them. But about a year ago, uh, we formally merged with MB Mission, our international missions agency. And maybe you know that or you don't know that. So the North American church planting and international church planting have come together to synergize those energies uh, because so many new Canadians are coming to us from around the world. So MB Mission's learnings with working overseas are going to really help us. In Canada, we've focused a lot on urban ministry, so we feel like we can help in Mission in urban centers in other parts of the world, and particularly among First Nations folks here in Canada, we feel that this asset of having MB Mission's expertise working with Indigenous peoples all around the world is going to help us here in Canada. So uh, that's a new thing, and as of January 2019, those two groups, C2C and MB Mission, those names are going to go by the way of the wayside, and we're now going to be called Multiply. So that's just a little news of where we're on. And, but it's far more than just church planting. Uh, it's about church renewal and revitalization, and ultimately, it's a vision, when you talk about Canada, it's a vision to see Canada transformed by the gospel, literally to see millions of souls Millions of disciples made to the glory of Christ. And that's an audacious goal. 
But the vast majority of Canadians in our day are outside a faithful gospel witness. The numbers of those who are today, if this is an average weekend across North America, actually engaged in the life of a local church are very, very skinny, and a lot of Canadians don't know that. We desperately need a renewal and a revival, a re-evangelization of this nation that we call home. And so it's a vision for renewal and for revival, and that new churches are planted, that old churches are replanted. I am excited. I am stoked. Matt and I had a lunch couple months ago, talking about the vision that God has brought to Chilliwack to see the replanting of churches. In Canada, every year, three to four hundred churches close their doors every single year. So if this is an average weekend in Canada, between six or eight congregations are having their last service and they'll close the doors and they won't be open again. Just like Matt mentioned, Harrison Gospel Chapel has decided that that, that season of ministry is done. Now, by God's grace, he has brought them to Chilliwack Central for a replanting. And on the north shore of the Fraser River, whether you know this or not, I really want to commend you to continue to pray and to serve. So Lake Arock and Agassiz and uh, now Harrison, earlier Mission with Northview and Tri-Cities with Northview, replants. If you know the history of the north of the Fraser River from Port Coquitlam all the way out to Hope, the church has never flourished in the history of our time here being moving in with the church ministry. There's been ups and downs, rise and falls. The largest church on the north shore made it up to about 900, had a big crisis. It blew up. It's back down to 300. The church, for whatever reason, on the north side of the Fraser has just not taken root. So as God has brought these congregations to you to pray into and to serve along with, just want to commend that and ask that you'd continue to just pour the fuel on it, pray for your leaders, and pray for new leaders to be raised up for many, many more. I think by this time next year, Chilliwack will be in 10 campuses in about uh, 10 cities, right? Is that right? No, you're shaking your head no. Okay, well, with the new senior pastor who's coming, there'll be 10 campuses by next year. So, but the need is so great, and it's a vision that is anchored in a prophetic text, and obviously not a prophetic text just for Canada. It's a prophetic text for all of the nations, but it has significant Canadian influence because our founding fathers, the fathers of Confederation, they're called, chose Psalm 72.8 as the motto for Canada. This is an amazing story. That in 1864, as they met in Charlottetown, and they're talking about if this thing could get out of the British Parliament, took three years later, it's got to be called the Dominion of Canada. Sir Leonard Tilley has his morning devotions in Psalm 72.8, that he would have dominion from sea to sea. Now, some see that, and they go, oh, they were talking about colonialism. They're talking about the King of England having dominion from coast to coast. No, it was much more than that. This is a prophetic text of King Jesus the king who would rule and reign, whose dominion is an everlasting domain, the kingdom that this book talks about, that this king would have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now, if you go to Ottawa and you stand there at the Peace Tower, I may or may not know this, but the arches are etched with scriptures. And on the eastern arch is that passage of scripture, Psalm 72, 8, he'll have dominion from sea to sea. Four or five years ago, I'm an American, I married a Canadian girl, got trapped up here, stayed. So after 30 years, decided it's time to become a Canadian. Got the study book that the Canadian government still issues to every new immigrant. And in that study book is the story of Sir Leonard Tilley coming down from his morning devotions and choosing of Psalm 72.8 as the national motto of Canada. I was blown away. I didn't think that our government, what it is today, would still be publishing that story. But every new Canadian who's studying to be a Canadian citizen is reading, in our heritage, our founding fathers chose a scripture and based the name of the nation based on that scripture. It's an amazing thing. The need of the hour, however, is so great. Seven to eight percent of Canadians claim to be evangelicals, but only about half of them are actually involved in the life of a church. 
So what that means on a typical Sunday in Canada, just over a million people are in gospel-centered churches out of 37 million Canadians. We live in a mission field. You need to be aware of that. Not just overseas, we live in the midst of a mission field, and particularly the new generation. A recent study uh, by the Pine Tops Foundation in North America says that they are predicting in the next 30 years that a million young adults each year will leave the church for good. A million young adults who've been raised with some kind of a Christian memory, it might be Catholic, it might be mainline, might be evangelical, charismatic, whatever, they've got some Christian memory, they're leaving the church by the droves and they're saying it is the great, greatest missionary opportunity in front of us in 200 years here in North America. This next generation that we would run back, that we would not just re-evangelize, for most of them it's evangelize them for the very first time. They've never been able to reject Jesus because they've never heard the gospel clearly. This is what's in front of us. This is our mission field. Okay, we are in desperate needs of the winds of the Spirit to blow and how desperately the Canadian church needs renewal and revival. And I think to get to the point of this is that we need a new glimpse of Jesus and who he is, our ruling and reigning king. We get so preoccupied with daily life that we forget where this story is headed. That we would catch a glimpse of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he one day will accomplish. And so there's no better book to anchor us to the exalted work of Jesus Christ and the exalted Christ seated at the right hand than the book of Hebrews. So we're going to read the first 13 verses from Hebrews. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in just a moment, but we're going to anchor it to Hebrews. It's a topical message. We're going to go through a fire hose of scripture, but it's going to be anchored here. So would you stand together with me? And if your eyes are good enough, then you can probably read along. Otherwise, uh, you you can listen with me. So long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. He's speaking of Jesus. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The reading of the word of the Lord. You might have a seat. I mentioned that to you, a fire hose of scripture. I want you to see three images of Jesus uh, in our 
two hours together. I want you to see Jesus riding. I want you to see him sitting. And then I want you to see him riding again. And I want to suggest to you that the theme of Psalm 72.8 is actually the meta-narrative of the scripture. It is the, the, the theme of this entire book from, from cover to cover. That this book, there are only four chapters in the entire book that describe life as it should be. So get that through your mind. That the world that we see and hear and know in the here and now, our everyday, going to school, going to work, doing family life, life is not as it should be. So if you're shaking your head, looking at the world, going, God, what's wrong with this world? The Lord agrees with you. He's saying this is not how it should be. And there's two chapters in the beginning that describe how it was originally created, the glory of the, the first creation. And there are two chapters at the end, which is significant that the kids are finishing off their three-year cycle through the scriptures, and they are studying Revelation 21 and 22 today, which wraps up where we're headed. So those four chapters describe how life should be under the rule and reign of our righteous King Jesus. Everything else in between is God's story of trying to win us back from the mess that we find ourselves in. It's the story of this book. And I want to anchor the prophetic texts of the old scriptures that talk about this rule and reign that's coming, this flourishing kingdom under the, the dominion of this king where wrongs are made right, where humanity is going to be restored to our original intent and glory, that this is where we are headed now, there are dozens of these passages, but I want to highlight just three for sake of time. Zechariah picks up on Psalm 72. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king, your king, your king, your king, we're going to come back to that. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule, this king that's coming to you, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now, if you know your New Testaments, you will know that that passage was directly fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 21 and John 12 tell the story of the Passover week. Jesus, on what we now call Palm Sunday, comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a humble donkey. And he comes as a humble king. He comes as a servant. He had laid aside his deity as God. He had taken on the form of a servant. And he is headed with his eyes set like a flint towards Calvary, where he would literally lay his life down for us in this humble humility of this riding on the back of a donkey. Daniel, one more text says there came one like a son of man. Note those words, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you're a young Jewish leader in the first century who knows your Old Testament, you will know that Daniel predicted the day when a king is going to come, and this king's dominion is going to rule and reign, and all nations and all peoples are going to come to this king. And he's called, one of his names, the Son of Man. So as you read your New Testament, you will also know that Jesus, at least on seven distinct occasions, self-identifies as the Son of Man. Now for us, we just read right past it so quickly. Son of Man, Son of God. And I've heard people say, yeah, Son of Man, that means he was human, and Son of God, that means he was divine, and bang on, we just keep on going. We forget the weighted measure that that verse would have for, the, for that Jew in the first century. The Son of Man, Son of Man, like a lightning bolt going off. 
Son of man, you mean Daniel's son of man? You mean the one who's going to come and he's going to rule and reign and all kingdoms and all nations and his dominion? You're claiming to be the son of man? It's like, it's like if I said, hey, there goes Will and Kate. They're walking through the foyer. You'd be like, what? The son of man? It's like lightning going off. We miss it. Jesus self-identified as this king who would rule and reign. Isaiah, one more. By myself, I've sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now again, if you know your New Testament, you will recognize that on two occasions, we are said, told that we will bow before this coming king. In, Re- in Romans 14, it's we will bow before him as our judge. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to God. So then each will give an account of himself to God. Philippians turns it on its head and says, Jesus in his humility, in his taking on human flesh, in his offering himself willingly as a savior, as a sacrificial servant, also calls us to bow our knee to him. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what these texts tell us is that there is coming a day. There is coming a day when every soul that has ever lived will bow their knee before this king. Every soul, every man and woman and boy and girl from eternity past right up until today will bow their knee before him. Some will not bow to him in this life and they will bow before him then as their judge on the judgment day. But we have the opportunity in this life to see his gift, his offer of life, and to humble ourselves and to bow before him as our king this side of eternity. But make no mistake, he is going to be exalted. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every king and kingdom that has ever reigned will lay their thrones down at his feet. Donald Trump is going to bow before him. Justin Trudeau is going to bow before him. Queen Elizabeth is going to bow before him. He is the king of kings. The Lord. This is a good time for Pentecostal amen. There's got to be a few of you in the crowd. I wanted to start with some of those big picture meta narrative, the big story, because we live in a time and a place where we need hope. Now, I just was reading this week, and the, the guy I was reading said, you know what, every generation looks at the darkness of their generation, and they think we're living in the last times, and Jesus would come soon, and there's always been this theme of darkness. But whatever, if that's true or not, the times that we're living in have many circumstances that cause you to just go, hmm, Lord, what are you up to? Lord, what are you doing? And uh, our, the pastor at our home church uh, earlier in the summer started a message with a series of questions that I found really thought-provoking. As he said, you know, what are the things you're talking about at home, uh, with the neighbors, uh, at work, across the back fence, on the sports field, wherever you're interacting, the conversations that fill the news waves, uh, the newspapers, the, uh, the internet, wherever you're getting your news, the things that we talk about. Uh, anybody in this room talked about exploding real estate prices? Are your kids going to be able to own a home ever in the Lower Mainland? Uh, What about that guy up in North Korea? Should he really have nuclear weapons? What do you think about that? What about the fentanyl crisis on our streets? Last month, July, was the second most deadly month for fentanyl deaths in the Lower Mainland in the last five years. What do you think about same-sex marriage when you're honest? How do you feel about this conversation around gender fluidity? 
Did you note, were you even aware, in June, Newfoundland, Supreme Court of Newfoundland made a historic decision that a polyamorous family, so two men and one woman, who are parents to a child, got the right to have all three parents named on their birth certificate. First time in Canadian history. What do you think of Justin Trudeau? Do you talk about him? We do. Donald Trump? NAFTA? No NAFTA. Uh, any dairymen in the room? Anybody still doing dairy around here? Have you been listening to Donald Trump's comments about the Canadian dairy industry in the last couple of weeks? What do you think about that? The Kinder Morgan pipeline? Pro or con? What about those protesters who hung themselves from the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge recently? What about the Me Too movement? What about the Black Lives Matter movement? How do you feel that come October 1st, from C to C, marijuana is going to be legal in Canada? How do you feel that Canada is one of only three nations on the entire planet that has no legislation controlling abortion? How do you respond to the Supreme Court ruling regarding Trinity Western Law School in the negative? And then how do you feel about Trinity Western dropping their student covenant? How should evangelicals respond to the new restrictions on summer employment grants? Should Christian organizations, camps, churches violate our theological convictions in order to still gain federal funding? These are the days we're living in. I'm sure all of those topics at one point in time somebody in the room has talked about, probably this week. And if your mind is like mine, you find yourself wondering sometimes, how long, O oh Lord? How long will this go on? How long are you going to tarry? How much worse could it possibly get? When are you going to step in? Oh, God, may it be soon. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, please. And the kids right now are studying Revelation 21 and 22, and they're pointing us ahead to this final day, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And you got to go, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, please. That's where we're headed. Maybe you heard the saying. When I was a kid, I heard this saying in our church. The gospel comforts the disturbed. And the gospel disturbs the comfortable. It's a paradoxical statement. They're both true. It's like two sides of the same coin. The gospel comforts us and the gospel disturbs us. And I can tell you with certainty that most of us in this room, if you're like me, are in desperate need for the comfort of the gospel. We so desperately need the hope of the gospel that tells us one day all of this is going to be set right. One day, sin and sickness and disease and all the things that plague us is going to be turned around. And unto that hope, this coming day of a peaceful reign under the loving reign of King Jesus will be ushered in. And hope, and we cry out with millions, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, please hurry it up. You see, when we begin with the end in mind, there's so much confidence we have in the finished work of Christ. The Old Testament promise the king is coming. He's going to secure our freedom. 
Pentecost, after his ascension, Peter preaches in Jerusalem and he's telling a Jewish crowd, that one that you crucified, he declared him as the ruling and reigning King Jesus. The Father has raised him from the tomb and he's exalted him as both Lord and Christ. Paul, in his letters to the New Testament church, expands on it. In Ephesians, he says, God, he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And he put all things things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now there should be a big question mark right there. If he is seated on the throne, then why all the chaos? Lord, if you're seated on the throne, if you are ruling and reigning, then why all the trouble that we're in? And Hebrews 2 answers it directly when it says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it yet, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Get your mind around this. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see that yet, but we see Jesus. You see, we live in this in-between period. It's what theologians call the already but not yet Kingdom. It's the Acts, four acts of the gospel, and I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, four-part drama called the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you can memorize just four words, those four words, you have got the gospel in a nutshell. Those four words will remind you of the entire Bible. They'll remind you of the entire gospel story, that God created us, that we fell away from him, that God has a plan of redemption in Jesus, and that God is ultimately restoring us to the original glory. Four words will remind you of the entire gospel story. Yes, you could fill volumes under each one of those subjects, but they're the main ones. And we live in between Act 3 and Act 4. You see, the gap between redemption and restoration, we are told clearly that Jesus finished the work that needed to be done for our redemption. Act 3, that when he cried out on the cross, when he stretched his arms out and said, it is finished, and then gave up his spirit, that he meant it in its entirety. It is finished. Everything that needed to be done had been accomplished, signed, sealed, delivered. Past tense, we have been saved in Jesus. Finished. Once for all. Accomplished. Nothing to add. I can't add to it by praying more, giving more, serving more, loving more. Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be done for me to be right with the Father. For you to be right with the Father. You don't add to it. He did it all. But we live in the in-between. We might cry out, but what are you waiting for, Lord? How much worse can it get? And he responds with patience. And he says, well, of first importance, there's this. We've got to get the gospel out to all peoples, to all nations. Jesus said it. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it's significant that that phrase, to all nations, is the Greek word ethne, which we get the word ethnic from. So it's not just all nation and states, the 240 some odd, you know, formal countries. It's every ethnic group. 
It's every language group. It's every people group. It's even Dutch people. It's even Mennonite people. It's, you know, you go through the list. All of us in our ethnic, in our heart language that the Lord is going to speak to us the gospel. So Peter is written to a group of exiled believers who are living in hard times. Rome is beginning to burn people at the stake. The church is being persecuted. They're crying out, how long, O Lord, at the end of the first century? How bad can it get? And the Lord, in essence, answers them by saying, don't worry. Don't worry, justice is going to prevail. God is going to carry out judgment. But then he says this, don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Aren't you so glad that God was patient? Aren't you glad that he waited to the 21st century or whenever it was that somebody told you about Jesus and you had the opportunity to respond to the gospel message and say, oh, Lord God, thank you for what you've done. I give you my life. I take what you've done for me. God was patient with us, and there are still millions of others as he tarries that need to get this message. You see, it's the difference, if you know your World War II history, it's the difference between D-Day and V-Day on the European continent. On D-Day, June 4th, 19, June 6th, 1944, 100,000 men landed on the beaches of Normandy and 10,000 gave their lives on that one day. But World War II was effectively finished on D-Day. It took 11 months for the mopping up, but now the Allied troops had a foothold, a stronghold behind the enemy lines in enemy territory. They had landed and they got the stronghold and now it was just simply a matter of wrapping it up. And 11 months later, victory in Europe was declared. D-Day was Calvary. When Jesus gave his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, in that finished work of Christ, the finished work is declared. The battle has been won, and we now live in that in-between, waiting for the enemies to be mopped up. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is the most magnificent exaltation of King Jesus as fulfillment of Old Testament promise. And in this book, it is significant that we see Jesus sitting we saw him riding humble on the back of a donkey. Now we see him sitting. And what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that there's nothing left to be done to accomplish our salvation. That over and over again, we see this phrase, he sat down. If you're reading through Hebrews, I encourage you, circle the words, he sat down. You'll find it six, seven, eight, nine times. I'm not sure. It's there throughout the book. And you might just skim past it and miss the impact, but to a first century Jew who knew what took place in the temple, they would know that the idea of a high priest ever sitting down, ever resting, was entirely unknown because the moment the high priest had finished the daily sacrifices, new sins were beginning to pile up for tomorrow's sacrifices. Literally, every day in the temple, sacrifices were made for the daily sins of the people. And annually, in the Holy of Holies, there was one great day of atonement but the moment the high priest walks out of the Holy of Holies, those dang Israelites are sinning all over again. And he knows his work is never finished. Day after day, year after year, the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats only covers over sin for a moment. And the work of the priest was never finished. The high priest never sat down. There's one piece of furniture that does not exist in the temple, a place for the priest to sit. But the high priest in Hebrews sat down. You see, Jesus does something that no earthly priest had ever done. He actually finished the work. It's done. It's complete. He can rest from his work because he has completed it. 
Chapters 10 explains it. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, Jesus walks into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls or goats, but with his own precious blood, and he goes to the mercy seat, there uh, to the, the atonement seat where God said, I will meet with you there. It is the meeting place. And that blood is sprinkled and the mediator of a new covenant and his work is finished and he sits down and waits. We've covered a ton of territory. And you might be wondering, where is this guy headed? I know you wonder that every week though with Matt's preaching, so what's new about that? <laughs> Sorry, buddy, I love you, you know. Can I come back again sometime? Where are we headed? It's simply this. Maybe it's my own personal opinion. Obviously, whatever. How desperately we need a glimpse of Jesus. How desperately the Canadian church needs to see him seated at the right hand of the Father. High and exalted. Exalted over all the nations. Exalted over our individual lives. Exalted over our corporate lives. Seated in the glory of the finished story of redemption that we can't add to, we don't add to. He is seated in his glory. And you know what he's doing as he's seated there? He's resting from his work, yes. But he's also carrying on another work. Hebrews 7 says he lives to make intercession for the saints. Do you realize that? We talk a lot about prayer. That we should be men and women of prayer. That we should be going before the Lord more in prayer. That the prayers of the saints rise like incense before the Lord. Beautiful imagery. But did you know the prayer goes the other way as well? Did you know Jesus is praying for you? That Jesus is praying for us? That Jesus is leaning into the Father and going, Lord, see those ones down there? They belong to me. I know, Lord, when you look at them, you don't see their sinfulness because they're not sinful anymore. Because you see them through my finished work. You see them through my righteousness. Is that not an amazing thing? Is that not an absolutely amazing thing? I think a lot of believers still do not believe that. When the Lord looks at you right now, if you are in Christ, he does not see your sin. He sees perfection. Why? Because he sees the perfect life of Jesus Christ that covers you over. He sees you sinlessly perfect now in this moment. Is that not amazing? That's what the scriptures tell us. He takes our sin on him and he gives us his perfect life, the great exchange. The Lord looks at us and he says, those ones, they belong to me, Lord. Would you protect them? Would you empower them? Would you enable them? As they head off to school, as they head off to work, as they head off into the neighborhood, as they are making money to pay their mortgages and to support ministries and to do everything, Lord, they need you. Canada is in a place today where your people need you, Lord. I'm praying for them, Lord. Is that not amazing? Unbelievable. Oh, to see Jesus. The gospel comforts the disturbed, that we have an anchor. It is sure and secure. We don't yet see things under his feet, but we see Jesus. We don't see everything under his feet yet, but we see him high and exalted, and there's comfort and there's strength and there's hope. He's patiently waiting for the full number to be brought in. But there is a second half to that equation. The gospel comforts the disturbed, and the gospel disturbs the comfortable. You see, the day will come when that exalted Christ who is currently seated at the Father's right hand, who is resting from his finished work, is going to stand again to his feet and he is going to ride again into human history to finish his great work. Hebrews 9 says, So Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because that's what he did the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And chapter 10 goes on to say, So you have need to endure 
For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then it goes on to say, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not us. We're the ones who live by the power of the Spirit. We're the ones who are enabled to persevere. And walking in the finished work of Jesus, we can overcome. But that little phrase, he is coming, should cause us to sit up and listen. You see, imagine the conversation between the Father and the Son. As Abba Father is saying, just sit here, my son, sit. Your work's finished. You've done your part. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my son. You finished the story of redemption. And now I am going to make the nations your footstool. The nations are going to be rolled up like dirty laundry, like a garment. You're going to throw them in the, in the trash bin. But your kingdom, son, will never end. Sit here for a while. I'm setting the record straight. But son, the day is going to come when there is one last ride that you must make. And we read earlier from Zechariah's prophecy that this king who has a kingdom from sea to sea and dominion over all nations and peoples would ride into town on a donkey, a humble mount. And that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And then we've seen him sit, sitting as the high priest and, and resting because the work of redemption has been done. But the scripture also tells us that this same King Jesus is going to ride again. And this time he's not riding on a humble donkey, but he's riding on a white stallion. It says in Revelation 19, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judged and makes war. So just pause here for a moment. Any Lord of the Rings freaks in the rooms, just think of Gandalf and the armies coming in to, to rescue. Like this is where Tolkien took this imagery from. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and there's a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure are following him on white horses, a whole army of white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of you old people in the room will remember as kids, we used to sing a song called Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. My God is marching on. Glory, glory. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our Lord, our coming King, the one whose rule and reign and dominion will never end, is coming in. We need to get back to that day. You see, I think we need a new glimpse of Jesus. Yes, we need Jesus, the gentle Savior, riding on the back of a donkey. Philippians 2 anchors us there. It says, if there's any hope, if there's any endurance, if there's any unity of the Spirit, look to Jesus and have the same mind in you that Jesus had. Take on the form of a servant. Just like Jesus emptied himself, he poured himself out. You should be like Jesus. You should humble yourself. You should serve. You should love even your enemies. You should be humble like he is. But not just Jesus willingly laying down his life. But we also need to see him now in his finished work, exalted as our high priest and the one who daily we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because it was finally done. But also we must see him as the king of kings who will rule the nations, who will appear this time not on a donkey, but on the royal mount of a triumphant king coming again to finish the work he began. The gospel should comfort the disturbed and it should also disturb us when we're comfortable. And if there's ever a time we need an awakening in Canada, I think it's today. 
we desperately need to be awakened. He begins with his people. If you claim to be his people, I'm saying to you today, the spirit of Jesus needs to awaken you. 1744, Scotland was in a terrible state, we're told spiritually. The pastors there were saying, if it carries on like this, the church won't even exist in another generation. Churches were closing the doors left, right, and center, and a group of pastors got this bright idea. They were desperate. They said, all we got left is prayer. We've tried everything else. We got to get together. We got to pray. And they began as a group to call their people to prayer. They didn't do anything big fancy, no rallies. They said simply this, let's try it for two years. Saturday night and Sunday morning before the gathering, call your people to begin to pray, to cry out to God for awakening and for renewal. And I, I sort of laugh at that. Let's try it for two years and experiment because in our day, it'd be like, let's try it for two weeks. Eh, pff, that didn't work. Let's try it for two years. And after two years, the spirit of Jesus started doing something in Scotland. And men and women were awakened to their spiritual need and nominal Christians were getting saved and unbelievers began to come in. And so these pastors said, it's, we think it's working. Let's carry it on for seven years. Let's try this experiment now for seven more. And in the midst of that, they wrote a letter to some of their friends across the pond over in what we would today call New England. Before America was even a nation, the New England colonies. And they said, this is what God's doing in Scotland. Would you get on your knees in the new colonies and begin to pray? And a guy named Jonathan Edwards and some others got a hold of that missive that came across the pond. And we look back in history now and we call it the first great awakening where massive renewal and revival went up the East Coast. 100 years later, 1857, the States is in a terrible place. Some are saying it's much like it is today. Racially, the divide was just massive, black against white. It was just on the verge of the Civil War, which would rip that nation apart. They were in a great recession, one of the greatest recessions they'd experienced. Unemployment was high. And a guy named Jeremiah Lamphere, just a lay leader, a businessman in New York City, says, we got to pray. we got nothing left. We've got nothing left but prayer. And I'm taking the noon hour, and I'm going to rent a church basement. I'm going to invite my friends to pray. First week, four people showed up, then eight people, then 20 people, then 40 people, and you do the math on it, and before long, there were thousands of people gathering every noon hour in New York City. It, began, it grew so great that Wall Street literally began to shut down Wall Street for two hours over the noon hour so that thousands of people could fill hundreds of churches across Manhattan Island, and we now call it the second great awakening that swept up again the East Coast and right up into Canada, into Atlantic Canada. And by today's numbers, it would be as if 10 million people came to faith in Jesus in the next three, four years. That's what happened. 1989, just 30 years ago, New York City was on the front cover of Time magazine, and the, the title was Murder Capital of North America. Ten years later, 1999, it was back on the cover story of Time magazine, now the safest city in North America, over one million in population. You say, what made the change? And if you've read Rudy Giuliani as the mayor, he will say good leadership made the change. And there was a lot of good leadership that took place from a political point of view. But there was another story written behind the scenes and continues to be written that I wonder if it's not the greater story. In 1989, two men in particular moved to New York City. One you probably heard about, a guy named Tim Keller, planted a Presbyterian church. But from the very get-go, he said, I know that one church alone will never reach the city or the world. One denomination alone can't do it. We've got to come together. We've got to plant hundreds of churches. We've got to lean in as evangelicals. The city was less than 1% evangelical. And so fast forward 30 years, they've planted literally 350 churches out of that one local church. Cross-denominationally, they'll work with anybody who's preaching Jesus. If you're going to preach Jesus, we'll help you. We'll work with you. But behind the scenes, another guy that I'm sure you probably never heard of, a guy named Mac Peer. 
He and his wife were missionaries in North India and felt a distinct call of God to come back to North America and specifically to New York City to start what is called the New York City Concerts of Prayer. And they began to call people around a very simple concept, daily prayer built on Count Zinzendorf and the hundred years of a Moravian prayer movement, a thing called the Lord's Watch. Not big marches in the street and not big rallies and filling stadiums, but simply getting grassroots hundreds and then eventually thousands of men and women on a daily basis saying, we will receive a newsletter and we'll pray for our city every month based on these five areas of prayer. Today, some 60,000 people are on that prayer list praying specifically for the five boroughs of Manhattan. In 2001 at 9-11, there were 1% evangelical on the island. Ten years later, they did a survey, 3% evangelical. You go, it's just the tip of the iceberg. But 3% based on those numbers is a massive growth of the church. 45% of the churches on Manhattan Island are new since 9-11, have been planted since 9-11. Two years ago, 2015, they did another survey. It is now 5% evangelical. That's greater than Canada is. Their goal in the next 10 years is to see that go from 5% to 15% evangelical on the island. Why do I tell you these stories? Because all of those stories were birthed out of desperation. They were birthed where people of God finally got so desperate to say, we got nothing left. All our great technology, all our great website stuff, all our great, you know, innuendo, uh, human ingenuity is not doing it. We've got to get on our faces and cry out to God. And like Zechariah of old, we need to hear the cry of the Spirit that says, ask rain from the Lord. Ask rain from the Lord, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain. Oh, to God that he would pour out his Spirit in new and fresh ways. So, guest speaker, I don't know you, I don't know what's going on in your life, but how long has it been since you really saw Jesus in a high, exalted place? Do you need a fresh glimpse of Jesus today? The finished work of Christ should be our rock-solid comfort and hope. He is on the throne. We will not shrink back. We will not be overcome. As Christ endured, he will enable us to be faithful, even in the days that we live in. And the coming day when King Jesus rides into town should not be taken lightly. Because every knee is going to bow before him. Every one of your friends and neighbors and colleagues at work will bow before him. You and I will bow before him. And we will bow either as our Savior and our Lord, or we will bow before him as our judge. But we will bow. Have you done that? Have you surrendered your life to the finished work of Jesus? It's a message every one of us needs. He's finished his work, and we can rest from ours. But we stand before him with an eye on a ticking clock, knowing that his patience, his mercy, his waiting is one day going to come to an end, and we're going to stand before him as our judge. So what kind of lives should we be motivated to live? What price is too high for us to pay? What sacrifice? What are we living for? We all do the things the world does. We have to pay mortgages. We have to get education. We have children. We do money. We do sex. We do family. We do work. We do education. All the things the world does. The point is we should do them differently. We should do them with an eye on the goal that King Jesus will be glorified, the rule and reign and dominion of Christ. So if I'm building a business, I'm building it to the glory of Christ. If I'm getting an education, it's not just so I have another degree behind my name. It's so that I can glorify Christ. And Lord, would to God that he would call out a whole new generation of ministers, gospel witnesses. We need desperately the re-evangelization of our nation. 
And we need the kids who are over there in kids' wing right now for the Spirit of God to be heavy upon them. And as five and six and seven-year-olds, they, they feel a call of God that says, my hand is upon you and I want to use you here and maybe around the world. And we need young men and women and many of you sitting in this room. I hope and pray there is someone here saying, the Spirit of God has been stirring within me a call. Being educated, working, going, all that stuff is not enough for me. I've got to surrender everything to him. I hope and pray there are men and women out of this congregation that he calls into full-time Christian service. Because you know what? Your pastor's old. He's going to retire. He's going to die. We need a new generation of leaders. Every generation has a responsibility. So 20-somethings, who's going to reach you 20-somethings? Generation Z right now, we're telling, they are leaving the church faster than any generation in North American history. Who is going to reach them? It's not going to be old farts like me. We desperately need a new generation. So would you stand together with me? I want to pray with you and for you. Worship team will come and lead us. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, thank you for the promise from cover to cover that there's a kingdom that you're building, that you are a glorious and righteous and peaceful and just Father who loves us, who designed us for flourishing, for human flourishing, for the glory of your name and for our great joy. And that we see it in the first two chapters. We see the beauty of fellowship with you and then we see it broken. And we flip through all the pages of the book and we get to the last two chapters and we see it restored again. That you're saying the day is coming when I'm going to be with my people and I'll be their God and they will be mine and I'm going to wipe all the tears from their eyes and everything's going to be set straight and sin and sickness and death and all the things that drive you crazy here are going to be over and done with. And we say, oh Lord God, first of all, let us see it as real. Let us get our eyes on that instead of on the daily grind. And Lord, give us hope, give us security, give us an anchor in the midst of this. And Lord, we live in a generation that desperately needs to hear you and know you. And Father, I pray for this room right now, young men and women in their teens and in their 20s that need to answer a call of God in their heart, a call bigger than just building a business, a call bigger than just learning, learning, earning a bunch of money and paying a mortgage, a call bigger than getting married and having a family. But Lord, it would be a call to the nations. And whether it's right here in the Chilliwack Valley or whether it's somewhere around the world, that there would be men and women saying, Lord, I sense that stirring. I sense that calling. I'm willing to say yes. For older people in their 30s, their 40s, 50s, retired people who have still tread on the tires and could serve you, that you would, each and every one of us would surrender to you and say, Lord, at any price, at any cost, I'll go wherever you send me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I don't care about my bank account anymore. I want to serve you. Lord, would you call out men and women and would you send us forth? So pour out your blessing on our lives, Lord. Most of all, let us see Jesus. From the moment we crawl out of bed in the morning till we drop to sleep at night, may the exalted king be the, the preeminent picture in our minds. Lord, you are ruling and reigning. It's not up to Justin. It's not up to Donald. It's not up to Elizabeth. You are ruling and reigning. We declare you as king of kings, lord of lords. We humbly bow before you. And we say, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.